We have been talking about global revival, global awakening. We've been looking at numerous scripture passages concerning this, uh, both Old Testament and New. And last week, we learned the significance of unity. And what I want to do is, since this is a little bit too complicated for me to tell you, it's a bit wordy, uh, I'm going to read it. And it is about two men who meet at an airport. Have you ever sat next to somebody, you got to chatting, and you just really got into things? And, and these two people got into the church that they go to and actually the, dom- the denomination that they're a part of. So one asked, are you a Protestant or a Catholic? The new acquaintance replied, Protestant. I said, me too. What franchise? Franchise, okay. <laughs> um, Baptist. What, me too. I said, Northern Baptist or Southern Baptist? Northern Baptist, he replied. Wow, me too, I shouted. I continued to, we continued to go back and forth. Finally, I asked, uh, Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1879 or Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912? And he replied, Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist, Lake Great Lakes Region Council of 1912. And I shouted, die, heretic. (laughs) Oh, my. They say that the army of God is the only army that shoots its its wounded, right? Well, we, I want us to, this morning, I want us to continue this understanding and and really the significance of unity in the body of Christ, and not just in our homes and in our churches, but citywide, globally, God desires to see unity. And we looked at John chapter 17 last week, and Jesus said that the glory praying to the Father, the glory that you have given me, I have now given to them. And he says that the reason for this is so that, we see a cause and effect here, so that they may be one, that is, they may be united. And that by being united and being one and walking in this, so that they may have complete unity. And in having complete unity, the result of this is that they will know The world will know that the Father sent Jesus and that the Father loves them. So when, when the world understands that the Father sent the Son, we will then understand, or the world will then understand the very purpose for why Jesus had to be sent, that he came to live a life so that we would be able to emulate that life and so that he would die on a cross for the forgiveness of our sins and be raised to newness of life. Actually, he then took on a glorified body, and one day we will too, but that resurrection now empowers the cross. You've heard me say this before, but that a resurrectionless cross is powerless, and a crossless resurrection is purposeless. Because the cross, Jesus, if he just stayed in the grave, what kind of a savior is that? What kind of a savior stays in the grave once he dies? How is that going to bring any element or, or any amount of salvation or rescuing to my life? And let me just say this, that a crossless resurrection is directionless. Why? I mean, Lazarus was raised from the dead. How does that impact your life? 
Jesus rose from the dead because he died on a cross and he triumphed over death and over sin. And so as we look through this, we discovered, believe it or not, that the glory that the Father placed upon his son Jesus was discovered where? Where was Jesus glorified? And we, we saw several verses in the Gospel of John. Remember, this is John 17. We discovered that it happened before Pentecost at the cross and at the resurrection. I want you to see the cross and the resurrection as a singular event. We can speak about them as two different things happening. They were separated by you know, Friday to Sunday. But the truth is they're like two sides of the same coin. They both have the same value. They depend on one another because a resurrectionless cross is powerless and a crossless resurrection is purposeless. Jesus has come to bring us unity by him dying. And when we embrace that concept and we take on that nature of a servant as he did, as we then walk in that crucified life and experience his life-giving resurrection power, we discovered that actually brings unity. I want us to discover more of that. Because I had to end the sermon a little bit early last week because, well, I just ran out of time. So this is, that's what I want us to do. I want us to, do, to explore this a little bit more and really dig into it and be practical as far as how we do this. So I don't want you to turn to this passage I'm going to read it to you, okay? Nobody turn there. Put your, put your Bibles down. Put your, you know, phones down. Don't, don't, I'm not even going to tell you where it is. All right, here we go. The acts of the flesh are, and he lists a number of, listen to this, sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery, idolatry, and witchcraft drunkenness, orgies, and the like. So he's talking about sexual sins. He's then talking about witchcraft, the occult, and he concludes with drunken parties, orgies, sexual festivities, all that goes on in those types of parties. Now, would you not concur that those are pretty serious sins? You, you start dabbling those things, they will take you down so fast. They will actually bring destruction, sexual immorality, the occult, and drunken orgies. Now, I purposefully left out a number of sins to show you something. In the midst of all of that, this is what I, this is what I purposefully left out. Right there in the middle. Here we go. Hatred, discord, jealousy fits of rage, selfish ambition, and we're going to come back to that one, dissensions, factions, and envy. In view of what I just said a minute ago, what is your view of that list of sins? I think there's eight of them, I read seven. What's your opinion of them now? Now that you realize that Paul takes them and sandwiches in them, sandwiches them between on both sides, sexual immorality and witchcraft, and on the other side, drunken orgies. Would you not say, man, disunity, discord, 
factions in the body of Christ in our very families is a really significant problem, serious issue. I think we need to treat it seriously. I think if we are going to see God's kingdom come here on earth just as it is in heaven, if we're going to see the rule of Christ extend to, throughout the world, yeast leavening the whole lump, not just parts here and there, including the 1040 window, not just the gospel being proclaimed to all nations and then the end will come, but as the gospel is preached, the nation's church are responding. Did you not know in the Great Commission... It reads this way, go and make disciples of all nations. That literal translation is make all nations disciples. The focus that Jesus purposefully has in the Great Commission is nations, entire nations. Are you familiar with the term people group movement? in which it's not just individuals that are coming to Christ. It's entire tribes. It's entire people groups coming in by the thousands and the tens of thousands. This is a move of the Spirit of God. It's happening in our day. It's happened in the past. I'm, I'm truly believing when, God, when Jesus fulfills this by the church becoming completely united, that remember when Jenny Rose shared that word about forgiveness? Unforgiveness, uh, or rather, God's blessing is not a reward for us forgiving, but unforgiveness is a blockade to God's blessing to us. In the very same way, God doesn't reward our unity, but he cannot move when there is disunity. Okay? It is a blockade. And so I want to see the yeast leaven the entire lump. But a major blockade to this is going to be disunity amongst us, disunity in our homes. We can breed disunity. We can breed disunity. Did you realize this? I want you to turn right now to Romans chapter 16. Before we get to the the, the real practical stuff, I, I want to lay this foundation quickly, but I want to lay this foundation. As you're turning to F- Romans chapter 16, so we're going to start reading in verse 17. 1 Corinthians 3.3, 3, by the way, says that those, the, the Corinthians were experiencing jealousy and quarreling. Jealousy and quarreling. Do you know what he called them? Do you know how he described them? He said, you are worldly. You are mere men. You, in essence, you are acting just like the world. Where is the power of the Holy Spirit? And in that very same chapter, he says that we are the temple of God, the temple of the Holy Spirit, not just individually, but corporately. How can we be God's temple in which God rests when we bicker and Devour one another. So, he challenges them. Get rid of this stuff. What a hindrance to the work of God. And in Romans 16, this is what he says. He says, I urge you, brothers. Excuse me, let me just pause there for a moment. 
If you were to read, you're more than welcome to do that, just maybe after the sermon. If you were to read that entire chapter, I, I didn't count the number of times he uses the word greet, but it's probably about 20 times. From the beginning of the chapter to the end of the chapter. And at the very con conclusion, he talks ab about this great uh, confession and then this great work of God, the mystery of God that has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets. To what end? So that, let me, so that all nations might believe and obey. So a culmination, kind of like a, an orchestra rising to a crescendo, boom. And he does that at the end of a, a greeting. Interesting. But as you read, here's what I want to point out to you. As you read through those greetings, greet this person, greet that church, greet this person, greet these people and all who are in their household, he steps back just a minute. A, a minute. I'm going to read that to you. And he jumps right back in. And so-and-so sends their greetings and so-and-so. So sandwiched in this greet this person, we greet this person and so on. This is, this is what we find. I urge you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions. And put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them. For such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. Everyone has heard about your obedience. So I am full of joy over you. But I want you to be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. The God, listen to this. Verse 20 actually begins with a word that is more than likely not in most of your versions. It's a simple Greek word, death. Not duh, death. And this is many times not translated. It's a connective. And when it's translated, it can be translated either and or but. But it's a very weak connective. And I'm saying this because verse 20 is hinged to verse 19. It's connected. We need to discover why. This is what he says in verse 20. The God of church, listen to this, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. You know what? Division keeps us from being united in love. That is the purpose of these greetings. Paul loves these people. He's, interesting thing, he, he had never visited Rome that we're aware of. He, he had never visited Rome. Rome was, Romans was probably written around 57 AD. He had never visited there that we're aware of on a missionary journey. But he knew so many of them. Many of the Jews, Christian Jews, had been kicked out. They had come back now, uh, Aquila and Priscilla being two of them. Um, he had known in his travels, he had bumped into these people. Um, I would love to get into some of those names and you would actually be familiar with some of them, but I'm not going to do that. It, this is an expression of love. I, I, I know you people, and I love you, and I want to send my greetings, and so-and-so wants to send their greetings, send their love. And right in the midst, but you know what? Before I go on, I got to say something. There are people who, who, who are among you, and their sole goal is to speak poison in your midst. And the only reason why they do that is for their own benefit, not yours. Negative talk, gossip, slander, 
false teachings that pull us away from Jesus, the God of love, that is poison. And he says, avoid, the, avoid that kind of talk. And he even says, avoid those types of people. Church, I, I want us to see this is serious. How we treat one another in the body of Christ is absolutely significant. Paul even says, I would rather be wronged than to take vengeance on someone and take them to court, even though I might be right. 1 Corinthians 6. I'd rather be wrong. I'd rather just fork over the money, whatever it is. I'd rather be wronged than to take a div divisive issue between a brother and I to court in front of the world to demonstrate we can't get along. Let that sink in for a moment. Unity. Brotherhood. Loving one another, being like-minded is so important in the body of Christ. And he says here, he says, our response needs to be one of obedience. Stop paying attention to all this divisive talk. These people and, the, and their intentions, their smooth talk, their flattery, their words that are, are they're like, you know, flowing so easily and, and we can be deceived by this and brought, it pulls us away from Jesus, the God of love. And they bring division. He says, obey. Your obedience has been talked about th throughout the church. And, the, and so here's what I want. Remember, verse 20 hinges on verse 19. Verse 19 is about being wise when it comes to evil. Excuse me wise when it comes to good and innocent when it comes to evil. That we know good so well, and we put it this way, we're, we're ignorant about evil. Wouldn't you love to be ignorant about evil? Wouldn't you like to just, as someone tells a joke and it's about some sin, it's like, I have no clue. But here's all, on the other hand, here is an amazing truth, church. When we have gotten into that type of sin, Jesus has come to rescue us and wash all of that away and make us now innocent in Christ. But obedience is the focus there in verse 19. Follow through, have nothing to do with that kind of talk. And when we obey, this is what he says. Listen to this. He says, the God of peace... The God of unity, the God of love, because this is the, these things are the essence, the outworking of love. He says, the God of peace will crush Satan. Isn't that amazing? This word crush is the same word that we discovered back in Luke 4. I think it was verse 18, 19, 20, 21, somewhere in there, when Jesus says that he came in fulfillment of Isaiah 61, the anointed one, the Christ, to heal the brokenhearted, to heal the, in your NIV it might say, the oppressed, the broken, crushed ones, to break beyond repair, because it means to break in smithereens. This is what God will purposely do to Satan. So who is going to crush Satan, church? Who is going to crush Satan? Help me out. Okay, God, Jesus, the God of peace, absolutely. And where is this going to take place? Under, under your feet, 
Not the feet that are straying, but the feet of obedience, if you will. We got to do something. Jenny Rose brought up this idea of forgiveness. We can't forgive in our own strength. And we, so we must forgive in God's strength. It is not by coincidence that the very next sentence is the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Because if this is going to happen, if Satan is going to be crushed under your feet of obedience, God is going to do the crushing. He is going to give you the grace to obey. So I want us to, I want to spend the rest of our time now, the next 20, 30 minutes, talking about how do we obey? Because in Philippians, you can turn to Philippians 2, in Philippians 4, verse 2 and 3, there was a problem in Philippi. Two women, I believe I'm pronouncing their names correctly, Euodia and Syntyche, they were leaders, they were probably deaconesses in the church. They contended at Paul's side for the sake of the gospel, he said, but they were not in unity. And he says, I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. That word agree with each other is this Greek word that means having the same mind or being like-minded. And he asks uh, his, he says, and I ask you loyal yoke fellow to help these women who have contended at my side. Help them. There's disunity here. And this is so important. Let's get rid of it. And the reason why he, he moves on so quickly is, believe it or not, he has actually talked about this, and he talked about it in chapter 2. So that's what I want us to do. I want us to turn, if you haven't already, Philippians 2. Let's camp out here for a little bit, and let's kind of unwrap what Paul has to say about this idea of unity. And we read in chapter 2, verse 1, if you have any encouragement from being united in Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete. Parents, have you ever said something similar to this? You know, kids, what would make me really happy, and they don't go on to say, if, is if you rub my feet, <laughs> or if you would just clean up your room. No, what would make me really happy is if you just got along with one another. I grew up with a, in a family of six kids, and we were experts in division. We were experts in argumentation and using our fists to win fights. Even me, I was number five. Man, I, I would every time, I would seek to fight my way to the top. I would use my fist. You've met my brother, Rob. He's about four or five times bigger than me. And man, I can remember just trying to, to fight him. If, if you've ever seen the movie, Princess Bride, when he's fighting Andre the Giant and he wraps his arms around, he gets about this far. Uh, uh, uh. <laughs> <laughs> and Andre looks at him and says, I just want you to feel like you're doing well. You know? <laughs> and I'm like, I'm not doing well. And, and I would fight my brother, and it was like an impossible thing. But we fought all the time. And there was division. And there was pride and selfishness. 
And if anything, I walked away with, okay, here's what not to do. You want unity? Here's what not to do. I'm going to try really hard. There's going to be some of what not to do, but I want us to focus on what we can do. And obviously, with everything that we can do, there is the flip side. I think we understand that. But he is saying here that, guys, this, make my joy complete. As a, as a dad, as your father in the faith, you know what would really make me happy? Is if you just got along with each other. When you go out to play, don't kill one another. I like to see all of you come back and no blood on anyone. That would really make my day. And Paul, is, he's in, he in essence is saying, this is, what, this, is, this is my dream. What do you want for Christmas? Oh, let me tell you. Make my joy complete by being like-minded. It's actually two words, but same phrase that's used over there in chapter 4 between Euodia and Syntyche. Help them to agree in the Lord. Help them to be like-minded. It literally is the same thinking. Have the same thinking. Not, not like robots, not like people, you know, we just, we say and talk and do the exact same thing. Because obviously many of us are very different than, uh, I, I know some of you are just so different than me. But that shouldn't breed disunity, that should actually breed unity. He then, at the very end of verse 2, he goes on and he says, having the same love being one in spirit and purpose. And that word purpose there means one in thinking. And it's the same word thinking or thoughts. And then in, he, he goes on in verse 3 here, <clears throat> and he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than or more important than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. I'm going to come back to those two verses. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. The word there again is your thinking. So how are we to be the same in our thinking, in, in united in the way we are thinking or in the, the inside here, the way we process life events and hurts and victories and successes and failures? And how do we process this... The, Life itself, what is our thinking supposed to be? It is supposed to be the very thinking of Jesus. Now, he goes on here and he says, concerning Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or held on to, but made himself nothing. Jesus, think through this, church. Jesus. God and all the rights and glories of God and that place of honor and worship Jesus in remaining in essence God, he laid those glories and those rights aside and he became human. But Paul words it this way, he made himself nothing, nothing. What does that say about you and me? We are compared to God, we are nothing. And Jesus humbled himself. As a matter of fact, it goes on to say that he took on the very nature, and it's the same word, it's used in verse 6, the very nature of God. He took on the very nature of a servant. 
being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he did what? He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him a name that is above every name. The death and the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus was glorified. In his glorification is what we are now called to join him in and think the same way. Church, we are all called to think the same way. How? By becoming nothing. By becoming nothing. By realizing that my life is to be spent on others. I've heard it said. Let me see if I can word it correctly here. That the entire world is comprised of others with the exception of one. Do you get that? So there are 7 billion people on the earth. So let me word it differently. There's one you and 6,999,999,999,999 other people. And Paul says, hey, others. Jesus, his whole focus was others. Jesus, God himself, considered glorification the very essence of triumph itself so that for all ages, this would be, this would be lifted up. Jesus what? Being crucified and raised from the dead. That was his glory. That will be sung for all eternity. Your redemption song, how Jesus, by his death and resurrection, came and invaded your life and transformed it. That's going to be your redemption song forever, church. You will forever sing that song. You may not be able to sing two hoots while you're here on earth, but I tell you what, in heaven, what a plea. Well, I think it's pleasing to God right now. Maybe not all to all of us, presently, but you know what? To God, he delights in it now, but then I think God's going to give us all amazing voices, and we're going to sing this redemptive song of what Jesus has done for me. The cross and the resurrection will never be worn out as, a, as, as the subject of any song throughout history. That's the significance of this. This is what he calls us to. Look at this Philippians 2. What is your attitude supposed to be? Humble obedient even to death so that Mike Curtis no longer lives, but Christ lives in me. So when we now look at verses three and four, he talks about selfish ambition and vain or empty conceit. Selfish ambition is looking out over the world, over the others in the church, and having the mentality that you're vying for position, vying for other people's praise, hoping to best them, perhaps, so that God looks on you favorably. I'm better than this guy. That's selfish ambition. You can see selfish ambition so very clearly in the workplace in which we seek to put others down and even Christians engage in this office politics. And the reason why they do that is so that they'll get the promotion and the other person they're talking negatively about will not. That's selfish ambition. I practiced that very well growing up. I was so good at it. My brothers and I, all the time. 
all about selfish ambition, vain conceit, puffing ourselves, wanting ourselves to look good. Church, this is at the heart of disunity. I, I want you now, right now, where I'm going through this, I'm going to point out four different things quickly. And I want us to, I want you to think of yourself in certain settings. Maybe it's at your workplace where you're experiencing disunity. Maybe it's in the school that you're going to. Maybe it is in your home or with a neighbor. You're experiencing this disunity. Maybe in the church. Maybe there are people that you just do not get along with. And the charge of Jesus is, hey, everybody, get along. Get along. Right now, what is, what's going on in your heart when you hear the Apostle Paul, in essence, saying, come on, get along. Get along with one another. As far as it depends on you, live at peace with all men, Romans 12. Well, how are we responding? You know what, Paul? You don't understand my situation. See, there's this guy in the church, and man, he just, he, I'm sure he's insecure, and he is just a prickly pear. And I'm doing the best I can, okay? I'm really trying hard. But you just don't know this guy. Yeah, we're telling God this, right? You just don't know this guy. You want me to live at peace with this guy as far as it depends on me? You want me to have complete unity? Okay, then you need to come down here and try to live this life. And God says, guess what? I already did. And I was able to do it. And I depend on my Father and on the power of the Spirit, but I did it. Now I invite you to. So church, what I'm going to share with you is possible so that as the body of Christ, we can come to complete unity, even in your home where there's argumentation every day. And that brings me to my, to my first point here. When we're talking about selfish ambition and vain conceit, so that in humility we consider others as more important than us, when we consider their interests above our own, I think, number one, we tend to value our right, our being right over relationships. So I'm going to word it positively. Relationships are more important than being right. Relationships are more important than being right. So why do we argue? Why is there so much argumentation in our homes? Take me back a, a, a few years. I would say the reason why my wife and I argue is because God's still growing her. She's coming along. And, but she's going to get there. And when she does, and that would be in a moment of candor and frustration and just wondering, why, do, why does she want to argue with me? And she would be having the same conversation with the Lord. Lord, one day there's going to be unity in my home just as soon as you get a hold of Mike. It's going to be good. And we just began to realize that much of this came from pride and selfishness and this concept of self-preservation. We put up walls. We want to be right. We want to protect ourselves can I ask you the arguing that goes on in your home? Okay, you with me? How much has it accomplished for you? Did you get all your problems solved through arguing? Through calling one another names by pointing out their faults and making sure that they knew their faults 
and, and oh, yeah, yeah, I blew it here, but a moment of candor, yeah, I was wrong here, but spend the rest of the, 95, rest of the 95% of the time focusing on them. Yeah, well, you see, that's pride and selfishness and self-preservations. Can I ask you, did you get your way? And if you got your way, at what expense? My wife and I, I'm not going to say we don't argue anymore, but I would venture to say probably 80% less because at some point, and I can't pinpoint, but at some point in our marriage, we just kind of said, wow, arguing, I just don't have the energy to do it. <laughs> oh. Especially at night. And it's 12, 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock in the morning. You know what? We've we, we been there, church. Not worth it. And so my wife and I, we just said, whatever. Okay. We, I would like to think it was godly character. I think it was just surrender. But regardless, I, I, I think that finally Christ just began to show us how worthless and petty argumentation was. So I just have two words for you concerning arguing. Stop it! <laughs> Write that down. Quote me on it. Put an exclamation mark. Put it in quotes. Pastor said, stop it! Profoundly biblical, right? The, the truth, though, is that in our arguing, we, we have to come to this place where we realize it's not accomplishing any worthwhile goal. And we need to realize that we are placing being right above this relationship. That's never worth it. Never worth it. Number two. I think God wants to develop some perseverance with people. I think he wants us to listen more than we speak. After all, God gave us, what, two ears, one mouth. Maybe the proportion there is significant. But listen to learn. Don't react. We take people's words. Ooh, that was hurtful. Bam, and we give it back to them. And you know what? Patience, I've taught my kids, patience is waiting without fussing. Remember that, kids? Patience is waiting without fussing. All right? I'm not going to fuss. What you're saying, I'm not liking what you're saying. But you know what? I'm going to be patient here. Are we putting people in their place? We're putting ourselves in their place. So I tell you, seek understanding. Verse 3, consider others as more important than yourself. Did you know that's a biblical principle for you to actually consider others as more important than you are? That's not how the world thinks. You're the most important. Be a better you. It's all about you. It's all about you rising to your apex and, and ultimate in, in ability and, and therefore success and purpose and, and uh the sense of achievement in life. What is that? God, God's going to bring all of that, but that's not your goal. 
Consider others as more important than yourself. In verse 4, consider the interests of others. That, by the way, does not mean that we want, that they, that what they want is what they need, and therefore what I give them. Look to others' best interests. Maybe that's a better way to translate it, at least in our vernacular. Their best interests. In other words, what they need, not just what they want. I'm not suggesting you be a doormat. I'm not suggesting you, mom and dad, every time your kids come to you and say, hey, dad, I want a Ferrari, you give it to them, right? Especially when they're six. <clears throat> so you give them a matchbox for Christmas, right? That's what we do. I'm, I'm not suggesting this. I am suggesting that, we, that we, we are looking to their best interests and that we are not seeking to be a doormat, but we're meeting needs. In John Maxwell's book, Winning with People, he says the mentality that we can have is, number one, he, he lists what is it, six, six things here. I'm just going to read them real quick. Win at all costs. That's how we generally, the body of Christ, win at all costs. And it's not just in the business field. It's at home, too. It's like a shootout at the OK Corral. It's quick, brutal, and destructive. Number two, pretend it doesn't exist. Pretend the problem doesn't exist. If you hear no evil, see no evil, and speak no evil, well, I guess evil really doesn't exist now, does it? Whine about it. There we go. That'll solve the problem, won't it? Mm Mm-hmm. Winners aren't whiners, and whiners aren't winners. Playing the victim doesn't cure conflict. It just irritates everybody. Let me just say, it irritates everybody. You heard me. It irritates everybody. Number four, keep score. Now, these are negatives, remember. Keep score. People who keep a record of wrongs can't ever start over fresh, and nobody can ever get even. Pull rank. Why do you do it? Because I'm your parent. That's why. Well, there might be a better way to say that. Pull rank. Using position never really resolves conflict. It merely postpones it. And then lastly, white flag it. Quitting is a permanent solution to a temporary problem. Patience with people. Husband and wife married for a number of years. They had a daughter. The wife came down with cancer and passed away. The daughter was young, six, seven, eight years old. Loved her mom. Time went on. She's about 10, 11, 12 in that neighborhood. And the dad gets remarried. And she still misses her mommy. And her new stepmom is struggling because the daughter is finding it so very difficult to love her new mommy. What would it mean for this new mommy to be patient with her daughter? She sits down with her and she says, tell me about your mom and why you love her so much. And the daughter goes on and she would sing to me all the time. She always tucked me in at night. She always had time to listen to me. She would come into my bedroom 
and she would sit down and she would go and she would say, so tell me, how was your day? And she really wanted to know. I love my mommy. And the stepmom said, you know what? I can see why you love her so much. As a matter of fact, I think I'm starting to love her right now too. But I tell you what, I want you and I give you permission to always love your mommy more than me. And I will understand that. But can I ask this of you? Any days that you happen to have a little bit of love left over, could you throw it my way? And so that little girl, now 12 years old, she would come up to her mom and give a little sneak attack, her stepmom, and give her a little sneak attack and wrap her arms around her and say, today, I think I have some love left over. And she would hug her. See, that's patience with people. When you're feeling rejected, it means giving them a, a listening ear. Talk to me. What's really going on? When your child is so filled with anger on some days, sitting down and say, rather than saying, you were just so out of line, young man or young lady. I don't know what your problem is, but you've got three seconds to get over it. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands on how many of you actually said that because the others would say, well, if I didn't say it, I thought it. But the truth is, we would want to draw them out. So help me understand why you are so angry. And do you give your children freedom to speak their mind? I'm not saying cuss you out, but to allow them to share their emotions. And let me tell you this, moms, dads, for your 411, when your child is really angry, it is almost an impossible situation to speak sense into them at that time. And when my kids, I mean, my kids, we, we disciplined them. You cross the line, okay, you know what? I'm sorry, sweetheart. I'm gonna talk to you, but the first thing that we're gonna do is I need to discipline you because of how you reacted. When they get a certain age, I just, you know what? We're gonna talk about this later. And then come back later when they're not so angry and talk to them. And the reason why I suggest this is number one, when you talk with an angry person, rarely are they listening to you and receiving from you. And number two, is that we are called to be patient with people, even our older children, when they're out of line. And I could speak more to this because some of you are saying, well, what about this and what about this? And I just don't have time to speak to all of that. But the truth is, we need to be patient with people. Patient with people in the church that just plain old irritate you. You're patient with them and you love them. I want to ask you, do you know how much you can irritate Jesus? All right. But Jesus is able to look past that, and he really is amazing being patient with people. Number three, generally, generally, I'm going to encourage you, put down the hammer. Because not every problem in your life is a nail. When you are problem solving and you look to your arsenal, or I'm sorry, I should say your toolbox of how to repair the relationship, is the only thing you see in your toolbox a hammer? 
Can I just suggest to you, don't use a hammer to swat a fly off your wife's head, guys. Don't do that. Do you remember in Home Alone where the tarantula gets, you, gets loose? It's not a hammer, it's a crowbar. Wham! <laughs> Marv, what are you doing? That's right, yeah. There's a little Calvin and Hobbes uh, cartoon. And Calvin is sitting behind uh, this, looks like a lemonade stand with a sign. And and the sign reads, a swift kick in the butt, $1. (laughs) Hobbes says, you know, Hobbes, he's the tiger. He says, hmm, so how's business? And Calvin confesses, terrible. Hobbes says, hmm, that's hard to believe. And Calvin says, I can't understand. Everybody I know needs what I'm selling. This may be true, but Proverbs 15.1 says a gentle answer turns away wrath. But a harsh word or swift kick in the backside only stirs up anger. What is, our re- is our reaction less intense than the action? I want you to weigh that. When someone, resp- when someone says or responds something some way to you, and you're trying really hard not to pull out the hammer to solve the problem, is your reaction less intense than the action or the words that they spoke to you? Are we de-escalating the situation or throwing fuel on the fire? And I want to challenge you, learn to be a thermostat and not a thermometer. Learn to, in your homes, even if you're a teenager, and your mom or your dad are the ones off the chain, be a thermostat. Be the one that brings peace. Speak in a soft tone with love, with patience. Consider others' needs as more important than your own. In humility, speak the truth in love. And then lastly, Maybe, just maybe, we need to shift our goals. Maybe what we're really striving for is the opposite of what we read here in chapter 2. Do we tend to defend ourselves? Do we tend to want to always be right? Do we tend to, I just want to be loved and you're not loving me, so we use, what, the hammer to get them to love us? We do it. Do we want so much to be listened to and obeyed? Is it my way or the highway? Is our goal really to put them in their place or is it to put yourself in their place? Because correction takes place best in the context of care. So what was Jesus' goal? If our goal was wrong, what was his goal? His goal was to live that life that was completely poured out for others. It wasn't about the accolades that he could get. It wasn't, and he deserved it because he was God. What are you really wanting in your home? Is it peace at any price? Or is it peace simply at the cost of selfish ambition and vain conceit? 
Jesus did not put others in their place. He put himself in their place. And this is going to be hard. And Paul knows this. He just laid out this amazing, amazing example in chapter 2 of Jesus himself making himself nothing, taking on the, the nature of a servant, being humble even to the point of death on a cross, the most cruel form of conviction, execution. And if you have a Bible like mine, turn the page. He tells us in the next few verses, he says, for it is God, how are we going to do this? It is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. It is God who works in you to will, to want, and to act and speak according to his good purpose, according to this purpose laid out for us in chapter 2 the life that has made itself nothing as a servant. Will you stand with me? Church, if we want unity, if we want complete unity, there's only one way. It's the way of the cross. It's the way of the cross. It's denying self, taking up our cross and following him. It is laying down our wrong goals and motives and taking on Jesus's. It's being patient, speaking words that build up and don't tear down. It's saying, you know what? This situation, right, it's not all about me. It is not all about me because I'm going to consider others as more important than myself. So Jesus, we are humbled before your word. We're struggling with it, honestly, I think. Because you ask us to do something that is so beyond what we would naturally want to do. And maybe that's the problem have given place to the wrong nature. God, I ask that your, na your nature would consume this old man and these old practices and these old ways of thinking that are so focused on self-preservation and me and me getting ahead. before you right now we make ourselves nothing we humble ourselves before the amazing awesome God and we are now seeking to step into the very footsteps of Jesus an utterly impossible task apart from your aid God so Father work in me to will and to act according to your good purpose your goals and not mine strip more and more of me away and may my whole life 
about serving and giving and stepping into others' shoes and being patient and honoring you above all else. Father, I pray for this amazing body of Christ here at Powerline. Give us the same thinking, being like-minded. Give us the same love that comes only from Jesus himself. Make us one in spirit and purpose by giving us the attitude of Christ Jesus. and there, there are people's lives on the line in my family if I cannot preserve this unity and I cannot live that sacrificed, poured out life. Change my heart, God. And help me, Spirit of God, Father, where we right now are at variance with our brother or our sister, make it right. Give us the humility to make it right. If we have wronged them, if we have spoken out of turn, if we have used the hammer when we should not have, God, forgive us and help us make it right. If we are not forgiving and we're holding on to grudges, help us make it right. If we have used our words to hurt and harm rather than heal, help us make it right. That we would only speak words of life and never words of death. But words are, that are wholesome and build others up and minister grace to them rather than words that destroy. Help us have the attitude Jesus himself. Make us one. Please, God, in our home and in this church. In Jesus' name I pray.